May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. I am here today with a guy who has a very unique and interesting legal practice, my partner, Pat Kilduff. Say hello, Pat. Hi, Rich. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Pat focuses on issues that arise in connection with outdoor advertising. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Outdoor advertising or out-of-home advertising. And uh, when I think of outdoor advertising, I think billboards. Is that what we're talking about? Well, that's that's a, a large part of it, Rich, but there, there are so many different forms of outdoor or out-of-home advertising that, that, that we come across. Uh, I'm really very fortunate. I love what I do. I get to represent members of a very dynamic, interesting industry with a rich history that goes all the way back to you know the 1400s and Gutenberg and movable type. Um, everything you see from Times Square started with those handbills from the 1400s to you talk about the 1800s when people would paint the sides of their barns with uh, advertisements and talking about other home remedies or hay that they had for sale. And then you work that through to the the early 20th century, when you had uh, the standardization of these uh, poster panel and, and standard size signs, all the way through to what you see in Times Square today. It, it's a really dynamic and interesting industry and all sorts of fun issues that pop up along the way. Well, it sounds like that's the case. Why don't we start in Times Square? Because when I think of outdoor signage, that's the first thing I think of. I'm old enough to remember when there was one giant video screen in Times Square, and that seemed like something out of Blade Runner. And now there are video screens and signs all over the place, right? Exactly. That's Times Square truly is the iconic home of uh, outdoor advertising, especially here in the United States. Times Square is unique, Rich, in that it's, it's one of the only areas of the city where there really are no restrictions on outdoor advertising sign displays. The city has a very complex series of regulations that govern where and how you can display outdoor advertising. In Times Square, those signs are celebrated. You know, there's no restrictions on illumination, on height above curb. You can see the digital signage, the full motion video, things which really reach up into the, into the skies. But when you go outside of Times Square or certain other areas like around Madison Square Garden, there's a whole robust series of regulations where the city is trying to basically say through their enforcement mechanisms that they don't want the rest of the city to turn into Times Square. So where we get involved is in this push and pull dynamic between New York City, which is arguably the media capital of the world, and a city that has an enforcement scheme that has tried to govern their concerns of traffic safety and aesthetics and not making every neighborhood into a Times Square. So Times Square is unique. It's great. It's dynamic. But then when you get outside Times Square, we have to deal with this whole series of, of regulations, whether they be in our zoning resolution or in our administrative code. Okay. So let's move out of Times Square a little bit. You find a lot of outdoor advertising on newsstands and bus shelters, what are the issues around that kind of thing? Well, newsstands and bus shelters, uh, other forms of, of street furniture, those are tied into various licenses and agreements that uh, companies have directly with the city of New York. And those types of signs 
are not really regulated in the same way as you would see signs on private property. So let's say you've got the, you're a property owner in Maspeth, Queens, and you've got a sign on the roof of your building that's facing the Long Island Expressway. You're dealing with a series of regulations and an enforcement scheme that's different than what someone who's got the sign on the newsstand would have. Really, what the city did is the city opened up newsstand signage and other other forms of street furniture signage as a revenue stream. And they basically bid that out. And there was a company that won the bid in order to operate all of those signs. So there are signs on newsstands, you have signs on bus shelters, you have these phone kiosks, you know, we can, we can all, we're both old enough to remember the old traditional phone booths. Well, let's jump to then the issue of private sites and signage. Let's say I do own a building in Queens and I'm next to the highway, as you say, and I want to put a giant sign on my ceiling and sell the space. What are the kind of issues that I face in doing that? Sure. Well, the first issue is going to be where exactly are you located? Are you located near what the city calls an arterial highway? There's a list of these arterial highways in New York City's zoning resolution. Give me some examples of arterial highways. Sure. Uh, The Long Island Expressway, the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Then there are also some other surface streets that also qualify as arterial highways. Northern Boulevard, there's the BQE. There's a whole series of of major highways that are subject to these arterial highway regulations. The city has long had a prohibition against having advertising signs that are located within 200 feet and within view of an arterial highway. So if you're that property owner in Maspeth, Queens, and you've got a, a building and you were looking to have a sign on your roof, you cannot today get a permit to display an advertising sign if you are within 200 feet and within view of an arterial highway. What had happened was, this is a prohibition that dates back really to the 1940s. There was a period of time where the city was not adequately enforcing these these prohibitions. Then there was a concern about a potential loss in federal highway funds. So back in 1980, there was in essence a grandfathering of certain signs that were located near the highway. But what happened is that subsequent to that point, you would not be permitted to display an advertising sign that close to a highway. So what did people do? That property owner in Maspeth, Queens, sometimes they would obtain a permit for an accessory business sign. Hold on, Pat. What does that mean, an accessory business sign? An accessory business sign is a sign that directs attention to a business activity that's conducted on that zoning lot. So let's say you had Joe's Deli, and Joe's Deli was operating in that building in Massapeth, Queens. You could have a Joe's Deli sign, but you couldn't have a Delta Airlines ad trying to promote Delta Airlines for people who are driving out to the airport. That's an off-site advertising sign because Delta doesn't have an office in the building. Delta doesn't have a business presence. That's an illegal advertising sign. So what had happened, Rich, is that people would apply for permits for these 1,200 square foot, 20 by 60 or 14 by 48, 672 square foot signs on the roofs of their building or on poles and say that they were going to be for the equivalent of a Joe's Deli. And then over time, the copy was changed from a Joe's Deli to an illegal advertising sign. In the hope that no one would notice. Exactly. And what happened, Rich, is that for many years, 
no one did notice, or if they noticed, they didn't do anything about it. Then, and this is when I got started getting involved in the industry, in the late 1990s, there was a new push for enforcement of the zoning resolution regulations. And the city discovered that they had all of these cases of people who were unlawfully converting these accessory signs into illegal advertising signs. So the city started issuing a series of violations. And then in 2001, they changed the law. And they changed the law to impose a very robust set of penalties against people who violated the administrative code and the zoning resolution so as to deter this unlawful conduct going forward. What does the city do to keep track of these signs and make sure they're being reviewed from compliance? I mean, I imagine they could just have someone drive around the city all day, but I assume they do other things than that. And they do do that, Rich, and they do have periodic inspection sweeps and they do keep their own records. But the city requires companies such as clients that we represent that engage in the outdoor advertising business to register with the city of New York. And as part of that registration process, all of these companies are required to submit an inventory of all signs that they operated that are located within 900 feet and within view of an arterial highway and within 200 feet and within view of a public park of one half acre or more. Now, you may ask, why is it 900 and not 200? 200 is the prohibition. If you're within the 200 feet and you are a post-1979 sign, you can't have an advertising sign. If it's between 1968 and 1979 that you were established, you can have the advertising sign, but there are certain limitations on surface area and height, and you have to continue that use. What the city requires is these companies to provide information as to the legal status of all of the signs that fit that criteria, 900 feet and within view of the highway, 200 feet and within view of a public park. And you're required to have a licensed professional, an engineer or an architect also certify as to compliance with zoning. So the city gets this inventory and then they evaluate it. And then if the city finds that there's some issue in terms of the legality of the sign or if there is an issue in terms of the proof that you submit to show that the sign is legal, then the city audits those locations and requires you to submit additional information. And if they're not ultimately satisfied, they can reject the sign from registration. And in that case, that starts a process where you can take an appeal from that to the Board of Standards and Appeals. And if that's not resolved, you can be subject to violations of the zoning resolution or the administrative code. And this is where our challenges come in. I imagine, Pat, there are harsh penalties for not providing the inventory or for providing false information in the inventory and compliance process. Exactly, Rich. First of all, in terms of enforcement, for years before the city adopted these changes to the law in 2001, enforcement was handled in the criminal courts where someone alleged to have violated the zoning resolution or administrative code would get a criminal court summons with a maximum fine of $5,000. Think about this. If you've got a prominent sign on an arterial highway making a lot of revenue, for some people, a $5,000 fine several months into a criminal court process where you're going to plead to a violation and not even a misdemeanor, for some that was seen as the cost of doing business. So the city adopted this heightened permitting fine scheme 
where any violations of the administrative code or the zoning resolution carry fines of $10,000 per violation first offense, $25,000 per violation second offense, and each distinct section of the code or the zoning resolution that you violate leads to a separate summons. And the city can issue summonses to the record owner. Yeah, so they can run up a they can run, run up, up a pretty big tab. They can run up a pretty big bill. And not just for one defendant. You can get the record owner of the property and you get the company that operated the sign. And they don't have to wait for an adjudication of the first set of violations to issue you a second set. So you can see this can very quickly escalate from the old system of five grand nine months down the road to a couple hundred thousand dollars for one particular sign location. So the city puts some teeth into the enforcement. And that's the system we have to deal with. And then there are all sorts of challenges in terms of making our case and establishing the legal status of the signs. So I've noticed in recent years on some of these arterial highways that you talk about, a lot of blank signs, or I guess maybe you would call them vacant signs. Is that a reality that I'm noticing that? And if so, why is it the case? Yeah, you're, you're exactly correct, Rich. A lot of the more prominent sign locations are currently blank. And those are cases similar to the example that we talked about a little earlier, where someone perhaps had that accessory sign permit and did this conversion that was unauthorized to display offsite advertising copy. And people are very reticent of being subjected to these heightened penalties. And especially if you're talking about a $100,000 hit on a particular sign location, companies and property owners are basically looking to uh, to minimize their risk of, of getting additional violations. Sometimes what will happen, Rich, is that someone will take down the copy while there is an adjudication of, of pending violations or there is a review through the through the DOB's audit process of the legal status of the sign. Again, they're not looking to, to, to get violations, additional violations while an initial set of violations is being contested. But the city doesn't make it easy because the city has very high standards in terms of establishing a legal status of the sign. Think about this. We could have signs that are that have been in existence in a location for 40, 50, sometimes 100 years or near 100 years. And the city requires us to prove that the sign was not only legally established, meaning that it complied with the applicable zoning law and administrative code when it was built, however many decades ago, but that that use, if it doesn't comply with what the law says, is applicable today, meaning it's a non-conforming use, that that use has continued without a period of discontinuance of two years or more. So think about that. If you've got a sign that dates back to, let's say, the 1930s on a roof, yes, we can show a permit with the old, you know, handwritten, almost calligraphy style writing on the, on the permit documents from the 1930s. And we can show a tax photograph of the sign from the 1940s. But the city says, okay, how do I know that that sign that was up in the 1940s is the same as what's up there today? And how do I know that you didn't change that sign all along the way? That's when we have to become historian and archeologist in addition to being zoning, land use and code compliance attorneys. That's when we need to get into the historical research to try to, try to prove that position. 
That's remarkable how fact intensive that sounds. Let's get off the highway for a minute. Let's drive into the city and we're on 28th Street and we're driving down the block and there are buildings that sometimes have signs on them. What kind of issues arise just on the streets of Manhattan? Sure. There, the the analysis all ties to what is the underlying zoning district. As you may know, in in New York City, the zoning resolution divides our zoning districts generally into residence districts, commercial districts, and manufacturing districts. As I assume you will not be surprised, residence districts do not allow the display of advertising signage. Certain commercial districts do. In most cases, you can display in manufacturing districts. So when you're talking about any particular example, you have to start with where is your property located and what's the underlying zoning district? Is it a district that allows any type of offsite advertising signage? If it does, then there's usually going to be some sort of limitation, whether it's surface area of the sign. What's the height above curve? Can I have the sign illuminated? If so, what kind of illumination? Can I have direct illumination, like a digital sign? Can I have indirect illumination, like a strand of lights above or below? Can I only have a non-illuminated sign? Those are all different considerations based on exactly where the sign is located. And then our city imposes all sorts of additional regulations. Again, are you near a park? Are you near a residence district? Because if you're near a residence district, you may need to angle away the sign from a residence district boundary. Are you in a special district? Are you in an overlay district? And of course, are you in a landmark district? All of those considerations come into play and have to be evaluated because especially if you're in a landmark district, you need the Landmarks Commission to sign off on any type of new signage. And let's just say that's not going to be the most hospitable form for advertising signage use. Landmarks can say, we can only allow a painted sign. We only want you to use certain colors. We only want it to be this high, even if zoning would allow you to do more. If you're in a landmarks district, it's just another layer of of regulation and hurdles that you need to overcome. I appreciate that overview of what sound like a lot of complex issues. You've been working, as we said, in the area of outdoor advertising. You're also a partner in our firm's compliance and administrative law department. Can you tell us a little more about the coverage of that department? Sure. I'm I'm proud to lead our compliance and administrative law practice at the firm. We're able to appear on behalf of our clients in, in all manner of administrative law proceedings. Many of the code enforcement proceedings in the city of New York are brought in an administrative tribunal. It's called the Office of Administrative Trials and Hearings. So if you're a property owner and you have a building department issue, fire department issue, health department, sanitation, many of those violations are heard at the Office of Administrative Trials and Hearings, or OATH. So we are are able to assist our clients and we appear regularly, if not weekly, at the Office of Administrative Trials and Hearings, defending those those violation cases. We also can assist in connection with other DOB permit filing issues, appeals to the Board of Standards and Appeals, basically any type of issue that, that a property owner or a commercial tenant might have with the City of New York or a regulatory agency, we're able to assist and appear on their behalf. Okay, that's great. Hey, Pat, did you ever consider a career in radio? Because your voice is amazing. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Rich. It's not, it's not quite the dulcet tones that you have, but I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the high compliment. I don't feel so dulcet. <laughs> uh, all right. At the end of these episodes, we like to have a closing argument where we give a takeaway or two to the listeners on the topic at hand. So what are a couple of things you might say to people on the issue of outdoor advertising in New York City? Again, just that this is such an exciting and a dynamic area of practice. Outdoor advertising is, is, is really very unique. It can be anything from the billboards, digital signs, to bus wraps, kiosks. It can be displayed anywhere, highways, city streets, airports, shopping malls, and it's accessible anytime. Advertising signs, they can't be turned off, they can't be blocked or can't be skipped. They always are displaying dynamic content and they're designed to display advertisements and promotional materials that will grab people's attention wherever they are on the go. And to anyone who is interested in finding out whether they can use this exciting media, please let us know and we can help you determine if you indeed can display your ad here. That's great, really fascinating area. And I'm glad you came on and shared it with us today. Thank you very much, Pat. Thanks very much, Rich. Really appreciate it. Thank you again for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should contact and engage counsel of your own choosing who can best address your own situation and particular needs. You can find more information about our law firm, me, and many of our guests at our website, www.tartarkrinsky.com. We are a mid-size, full-service firm located in New York City and New Jersey. If you want to contact us for any reason, be it comments, topic ideas, or anything else, you can email us at podcast at You can also follow this podcast on iTunes, among other places, and we would very much appreciate it if you rate or review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein, and this was Law Brief.